It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. It is Thursday afternoon. Games have started. March Madness has begun. Might not have been the most action-packed week in North Carolina politics, although there was a lot of news, and we're going to cover that. But it is an exciting time of year because basketball March Madness has begun. But in North Carolina news, (laughs) on Tuesday, there were two back-to-back health committee meetings, and the second meeting was the one that everyone had heard about. Representative Donnie Lambeth said on the floor last week, hey, I know y'all are going home, but we have a couple good meetings coming up, and one of them was about Medicaid expansion. It was their third meeting of this group, and that's both House and Senate, and former Ohio Governor John Kasich joined via WebEx. Not exactly the most popular Republican in politics right now. He has been a vocal critic of President Donald Trump. He was a candidate in 2016 for president. Uh, By the way, John Kasich, I remember when he came onto the scene back when Republicans took over Congress in 1994. In that 95 session, he was the budget committee chair, certainly a fiscal conservative but somewhat moderate on other issues. Uh, He gave an impassioned plea for the General Assembly to expand Medicaid and really made a moral case as to why they should expand it. Essentially a case of this is the right thing to do. There's people out there, they're hurting, help those people. Invoked a little bit of the Bible. What are you going to answer when you get to those pearly gates in the afterlife? And he said, you're not going to be asked, did you balance the budget? You're going to be asked, did you help people live better lives? So backing up, the reason that this committee is meeting now and not in the 2021 session is what? Basically, the General Assembly could not expand Medicaid in 2021. It was before the primaries, and we have seen a lot of primaries, especially on the Republican side. We have this kind of resurgence, I think, of some Trump-following candidates that are out there, and I think the General Assembly was hesitant to expand Medicaid in 2021. And let me just strike that, not hesitant. They were emphatic, especially on the House side, but they would create this committee and they put it in the budget. And folks, we talked about Senator Kirk Deviere last week, uh, Representative Billy Richardson. All the Democrats were, that were in those budget negotiations really fought hard to get this kind of blue ribbon committee put together. There's also another factor. You know, we talk about the House Republicans. There was also this huge race that many of us thought was going to come to fruition, and that is Speaker Tim Moore was looking to run for Congress. By all accounts, would have had some sort of primary fight to get that nomination. Now, we know since then that district has dissolved under the special masters, but at the time, Going into those budget negotiations, he was very much looking at that congressional seat. And there was just really no way that he could go along with it then. I think that based on the presentations in this committee and the way that the discussion is going, there will be something that will happen. It may not be a full-blown Medicaid expansion, but some sort of step in that direction will happen this year. So over this past weekend... 
this was a little bit of news, not something that was unexpected, but we have been trending in this direction, and that is that officially unaffiliated voters overtook Democrats in our highest registration in the state. Yeah, and Democrats out-register Republicans. So the biggest political party is not a political party. It's unaffiliated. Up until this point, we were saying the unaffiliated voter was the fastest growing party in North Carolina. They still have that title. They continue to grow every single day. I think this has a lot to do with younger voters just feeling no connection whatsoever to the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. And it really just begs the question, Sky, which political party is either political party going to try to be a big tent party? Yeah, recently you take a look. If you're selling the Democratic Party or the Republican Party as a product to consumers, your millennials, Gen Z, is that a product they want to buy? Yeah. Speaking of voters and those connections, Democratic, Republican, John Locke released, I think this was a couple weeks ago, right? Mm-hmm. Their partisan index for the year now that the maps are set. Yeah, the John Locke Foundation is a conservative think tank. They do a really good job of polling. And I think most folks across the political spectrum rely on John Locke and Civitas. They've combined now. Civitas used to have this lane by themselves, but very reliable polling. And they do it in a very easy to understand index. So uh, a district may be D plus six, which means it's Democratic by six points, uh, or it may be R20, which means it's definitely going Republican. And they put out this index a couple weeks ago. It looks like Republicans are in the driver's seat. So over on the Senate side, if Republicans do as well as we think they'll do this year, the Democrats would need to gain all of those seats that are maybe Democratic, and they would need to win four toss-up seats in the Senate to win a majority. And for them, it would be really difficult for them to get to that supermajority point. But the Republicans could gain that supermajority by picking up all of those toss-up seats and then two seats that lean more Democratic. And in a good Republican year, that could happen. Mm -hmm. Over on the House side, uh, same applies. Democrats certainly have their safe seats. They have 33 safe seats. Uh, Republicans have 39 safe seats. But if you go down and you look at where uh, the likely Democrat, likely Republicans, Republicans have the edge there. And then you think about those swing districts. And it appears that we are looking at another status quo house. It's, it would be a long shot, according to the John Locke Performance Index, for Republicans to get a supermajority. Certainly there is a path there. But the... The likelihood of Democrats getting control, slim to none. Last week, on a day you were traveling, Sky, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Secretary of State Elaine Marshall. She dropped by the office, and we had a really good conversation. 
The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Madam Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about what the Secretary of State does in North Carolina? Well, I know we have limited time, so let me go kind of fast <laughs> okay. and maybe uh, the high spots. All right. Um, what, what I tell people is if, if you're thinking about a business, you're going to need to deal with us. Um, if you want to start a business as a corporation or an LLC or a nonprofit, we're the only place in North Carolina where you can get incorporated and start to go. You monitor charitable giving. That is correct. Right. Charitable, certain charitable organizations have to register with us. Basically, if an organization hires a professional fundraiser, if an organization brings in over $25,000 a year and or employs somebody to help raise the money or help run the organization, then they are the ones that have to have a license. We have a pretty good listening audience, lobbyists and special interest groups. We are now going through the process of registering for Yes, yes, yes. Uh, Lobbyist registration has been uh, with the Secretary of State's office since before I came into office, and but the law has changed a lot. The people that hire lobbyists, known as lobbyist principal, have to uh, register, and then the lobbyists themselves, the ones who are hired, hired to go down to the General Assembly to advocate for their position for, against certain things, they have to register, and all of those parties have to report. Depends upon if the legislature's in session or not in session as to how frequently reports have to be made. And you have held this position since the 1996 election, right? You took office in 1997 and the first woman to be elected statewide. January 11, 1997, yes, was day one, although we were preparing following the election. Yes, it was quite an honor to be the first woman elected to executive statewide uh, executive office in North Carolina back then. It thrilled thrilled me, uh-huh. uh, but a lot of women's groups had said, it's about time. Right. Um, a lot of states had elected female governors, and when I would say to people, we've never elected any executive position, they would go, they'd scratch their head right. and say, what? This is a progressive state, what? You know, they didn't understand it, but um, broke that glass ceiling in that election of November 96. Now, we're still not where we reflect our society as far as the demographics of women in politics and in the, we can include the general assembly in that. But I do think there's a certain amount of in 2022, we might take it for granted because we do see more women in statewide office. We do see more women, but people have a reporting duty to us uh, for uh, boards and commissions, those that have power. And unfortunately, that report has been going on for over 20 years, and the numbers have not changed much Yeah. when you go statewide. It's basically a third of the people on power-influential places yeah. are women, whether it's elected or appointed. Right. And our numbers at the General Assembly fluctuate. You know, one person change, like Susan Fisher has now been replaced by a guy. That brings it down. Uh, when I first started looking at these things, we were at about 24%, which led the whole southeast, because at that point, some 
uh, legislative bodies had never had a woman elected, and Kentucky was one of them. Right. It was amazing. That's not you know a state that I would have guessed for that. But um, we're still at about that number. We're in the low 20s. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So you were serving in the North Carolina Senate. Go back in time a little bit. You're, you're going to run statewide. Was there any pause at all? The Republican Party had nominated women for statewide races, and they were not successful. The Democratic Party hadn't even nominated anybody. Is that right? Yep. And so the party was strongly behind. I mean, the, strong, the party had a... Uh, recruitment committee that was actively working on trying to get a female to run. And there were six people in the primary, uh, two males and the rest females, and I had to have a runoff, and then all for the honor to run against Richard Petty in the general election. <laughs> right. But, um, you know, women were very enthused. A lot of my networks, uh, as far as getting elected, were women's groups. Uh, when I was in the Senate, I had done some bills for social workers, and the nurses saw that, and I, you know, I spoke to those kind of groups while I was a senator. Um, I was, before coming into the Senate, was very active in starting a, we started it as rape crisis, but it was a domestic violence group in Harnett County, so I was known through the domestic violence groups around the state. So those kind of networks were so enthusiastic, it was unbelievable. Um, AAUW organizations, just BPW, all kinds of uh, women's organizations looked at this and said, by golly, we finally do have a chance to elect a female uh, to an executive statewide office. So it happened. I forgot that racing legend Richard Petty was your first opponent, and nothing underscores, right, this man versus woman race than, exactly. than, than the first woman to, to get the office, but you're running against a guy's guy, right? An icon, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 That tough race. It was. It was just totally fascinating from the public relations point of view. Uh, Jim Hunt was so far ahead in the governor's race that yeah. there wasn't a big story there. Then it was the um, Harvey Gantt, Jesse Helms race, That's right. second time. So that kind of was not the novelty race, but we were definitely the novelty race. I spoke to papers all over the country and even internationally. The Finns apparently like NASCAR a lot. I had an interview with a Finnish journalist. Uh, NASCAR News did a report, the Chicago Times, you know, just all sorts of, David Broder followed me for a day uh, to get a feel for the race. Um, just interesting, interesting things happened because it was such a novelty race here in North Carolina. Out there in North Carolina in 1996, there was a Jesse Helms voter, that same voter probably voted for Jim Hunt, that same voter voted for Elaine Marshall. You are from a rural area, you're from Harnett County. Right, right. We don't see many Democrats in Harnett County, at least elected to the General Assembly or in statewide office. You had to have broad appeal that we're not really seeing today. I am a farm kid. Okay. I was raised on a family farm in the outskirts of a tiny village in north central Maryland that didn't have a stop sign and to this day still doesn't have a stop sign. The Baltimore paper one time did an article entitled it, A Place Where Time Stood Still. That's where I'm from. Wow. Limeboro, Maryland, right on the Maryland-Pennsylvania line. My heritage is sort of Pennsylvania Dutch-ish, okay. uh, German, uh, Scotch-Welsh uh, kind of family background. Um, but 4-H, and farming were very, very, it was my whole life. It was my family's life. 
Uh, I was um, actively involved in 4-H, enjoyed a measure of success in 4-H to the extent of being a national breadwinner, one of six in the country, which gave me a small college scholarship, $600, but $600 back in the late 60s was a heck of a lot of money. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I, um, I had 4-H networks. Okay. I had 4-H, and that was in Maryland, but that 4-H batch of credentials, I had been a 4-H international exchange student. Uh, I had been the Maryland State 4-H All-Star President. That's the kind of elite group of older 4-Hers that get honored. That immediately transferred to North Carolina because the North Carolina 4-H Extension Service people knew exactly what those honors and credit credentials uh, amounted to. Um, so having been a national winner and then we have honor club here in North Carolina. And I've, I've always believed in paying back to 4-H because I know that I might still be on that small farm in a place where time stood still. And it's a delightful place. Mm. Make no bones about it, I am not complaining. But it, I didn't see much of the world from there. And 4-H allowed me to experience things and see things and do things that my parents never thought of. Mm -hmm. But they had confidence in the 4-H program. And when the extension leaders said, you know, we think Elaine ought to apply for this international program, or Elaine ought to, you know, she's probably good speaking, but she could be better if she participated in the public speaking program mm -hmm. at 4-H. I learned parliamentary procedure through 4-H, which is a lost art that a lot of students never pick up. Right. Uh, we see it at the General Assembly. We see it in a lot of organizations. So I'm a proponent for studying parliamentary procedure. And those were the kind of confidence-building things that allowed a girl to come to a state where I didn't go to college here at that time. I was divorced later on. I didn't have a whole network of connections that I had made personally. But my life experiences opened those doors for those connections. So I, I give credit to 4-H every day. I wouldn't be where I am today as a statewide officer serving had it not been for 4-H. So you're in the Senate race, and I believe you were elected in 1991 or 1992. 1992, that's right. Here's, when you talk about going to the General Assembly, I campaigned going to the country stores, talking to the farmers who came in to get their soda to take out to their workers. I knew exactly the schedules, where they were going to be. I can talk their talk. I can sit down and, you know, on a bale of hay or, you know, I went to a tobacco auction and even though we didn't have tobacco in Maryland, I knew what was going on. I knew the significance of it. And so I educated myself on those. And, um, you know, farm girl does good. You know? right, and, right. and that helps in the rural area. The 4-H and the personal rural, ex rural experiences were very valuable in, um, you know, people have got to relate to you. Yeah. Or you got to relate to them if you want them to vote for you. Understanding that we had a lot of common background mm -hmm. is very, very important no matter what it is, what your challenge is, or what you're trying to achieve. That commonality and understanding each other and then having the ability to listen to each other is, um, is vital for success in so many things in life, but vital in politics. Let's go back to your migration from Maryland to North Carolina. I understand you started your professional career in North Carolina as a school teacher. Can that's, you talk us? That's talk? correct. That's yeah. correct. I taught home ec at North Lenore High School. Uh, it's one of the rural schools in Lenore County, and it's actually located at Wheat Swamp. 
it was one year before um, total integration, and so it was okay. a stressful year. It really yeah. was trying to combine programs, and uh, I wrote some programs that I don't know if they ever got used. Um, my degree was in textiles and clothing, so that was kind of my specialty in the home ec area. Although I'm a cook, I love to cook, and you know, so I'm, I'm a food and nutrition freak sometimes. Okay. So um, I was able to do the whole array of things that were needed. And I'll tell you, my first year in North Carolina, year and a half, uh, that year in school, taught me more about the culture of North Carolina than any one single experience of my life. Later, you would go on to law school? That's correct. I had businesses in between. Okay. Um, While I was teaching, I was a decorator and a store owner, which I did part-time. And uh, my husband, you know, was the mainstay in some of the, the business opportunities. Uh, not the decorating business, but, uh, you know, I did that free time. And I taught at the community college also. Oh, right. You know, just, just did a lot of civic things around Kinston and totally enjoyed it. What, what made you want to go to law school? I was divorced. Okay. <laughs> uh, I needed a new me. <laughs> okay. um, I felt um, pushed down by some of the laws that were in existence at that time. Uh, I'm, we moved to Dunn, North Carolina, and I inst- my prior part of the decorating business, I did kind of out of my home, out of my car, but I actually acquired a retail space and had a fabric store and a decorating shop. And at, um, when you get these big orders for decorating, you got to get the fabric and the carpet and whatever materials in ahead of time. You need a line of credit. So this is a very good example. I went down to the bank, made an appointment, and I showed up at the time for the appointment and sat down in the loan officer. And they said, where's your husband? I said, well, he's not here. You know. And they said, well, we need him. Um, come back tomorrow at the same time and bring him along. And um, the loan officer did all the talking directly to my husband, didn't hardly look at me, and I felt like a potted plant over there. And I, I'm thinking all the time and fuming that if this loan's going to be repaid, it's going to be due to my hard work. Yeah. He doesn't know burlap from potassoir. Right. So, you know. You're talking to the wrong person. But the man had to sign. The man was the lead spokesperson for a marriage, you know, and I just had a slow burn going I on, you. you know. So um, I, I really did a new change, needed a new change in my life. And Campbell opened up in my backyard yeah. from Dunn. And I watched it with the first class going in, and I watched the second class. And one of my decorating jobs was to decorate Dean Leary Davis's house at uh, Keith Hills Golf Course. Back then, interest rates were incredibly high, and a good decorating job was converting somebody's carport into a family room. That was a big decorating job. So I had a whole, there were not a lot of new houses being built, but because he was moving to be the dean, built a new house. And he kind of baited me into thinking about law school and just kind of saw that I had some yearning, some desire to do more than what I was doing, and he baited me and encouraged me to take the LSAT, which I did, and um, <laughs> really funny. You had to bring a writing sample. Campbell, at that point, interviewed every potential student, and I had to bring a writing sample. My most learned writing sample with footnotes and documentations was an essay on glove etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> From your home ec days? From my home ec days. Okay. I put it on his desk, and I tried to slide it under some other papers so that maybe they wouldn't look at it and see how unofficial it seemed at that time, uh, unimpressive at that time. But fortunately, um, I was admitted on a probationary status. Um, 
for students who had careers that were not exactly academically where they needed to be, or didn't knock the socks off of the LSAT, or they just had questions, I hadn't challenged myself. That mm -hmm. was the real question. Homework was easy peasy for me. Uh, and my other grades were, I passed everything, but nothing spectacular, nothing to write home about. Okay. Great grades at home ec, but that wasn't going to sustain me in law school. So Campbell had this program where you take two courses in the summertime. If you made B's in both of them, you were automatically admitted. Uh, you were only competing against yourself. It wasn't that you were competing against other already admitted students. They were going to let everybody in. We called it PBAP, Performance-Based Admission Program. And I was admitted that way. I studied like I've never studied in my whole lifetime. I jettisoned everything else out of my life to study because I am easily distracted. And I knew I had to find some discipline somewhere that I had never found before. And I was admitted and graduated. And my father was absolutely stunned. He never understood why I wanted to go to law school. But he was proud, proud as anything. Yeah. And at the graduation the day before was a hooding ceremony, and they gave out what are book awards for the number one student in some class. And before going to that event, I told my mom and my dad, I said, they're going to be giving out a lot of honors. You know, you're probably not going to hear your daughter's name called out. They were prepared for that. Lo and behold, I didn't know, but I received the book award for one class, and Daddy thought I sandbagged him. <laughs> <laughs> he talked about it year after year after year. Aww. And I told him I really did not know, and he, he never believed me totally. Oh, that's a good story. <laughs> yeah. Good story. Yeah. Let's talk about your decision to run for the North Carolina Senate. Okay. Um, what prompted you to go from school teacher, teaching at the community college, small business owner, you go to law school, and then you decide, I'm going to go to the Senate. I was always interested in politics. Okay. Um, I worked for congressional candidates in Maryland. I was active in the Young Democrats of Maryland. Right. And um, then when I moved to North Carolina, I got active in the Young Democrats here and just always had that desire. And I thought, well, like a lot of women, I'm not qualified. I'm not ever going to get qualified, blah, blah, blah. And then I would see people in the young Democrat world who were lawyers, who were very good on their feet, articulating and advocating for different positions and even writing bills, you know, doing that kind of thing. And I kept thinking, because I'd have a beer with them later, you know, um, they're not greatly smarter than I am. <laughs> <laughs> you know, maybe it's the law school training. And so that's when, in addition to being pushed by Leary Davis, that's when I began to think about it. And lo and behold, you know, yep, uh, I went to law school, got all the skills I needed to be in the General Assembly, and certainly uh, lawyers who serve there can distinguish themselves much easier. Uh, in my freshman class, there were, Leslie Winter and I were the two, uh, two females, but two lawyers. And our colleagues would call upon us for help to research or even draft wording in bills. And there are things that you learn in law school, particular wordings that are used in um, legal language that doesn't always appear to a, a, a non-lawyer person out there. You know, but you pick those up in law school and you, you've got them in your head and you just go with it. Uh, I remember some staff people 
uh, said, we love working with you because you, you do a first draft of your own bills. You know? <laughs> we don't have to start from nothing. You know where you want to go and you know, you know, especially if it's a plug-in thing where right. you're going to put it, you know, yeah. you're not changing the whole law, but you want to add a couple of paragraphs or another sentence or two. And they said, you can, you can do your own work. We like working with you. Some would describe the Senate as always being kind of a, an old boy network. So you're going into this right. uh, male-dominated uh, General Assembly Senate, and you're taking an agenda, as you described earlier. You're working on domestic violence issues, social work issues, I'm sure, parity issues. Mm-hmm. But a lot of legal issues, too. A lot of legal issues. What was it like to take some of those issues to the Senate? Well, it was two things. Number one, the skills that um, helped me get elected out in the country stores were the same things in behind closed doors. People don't know it, but when lawyers are standing, sitting around in court waiting for their cases to be called, they're all in a back room telling jokes, right. being cutting. And, you know, you got to learn to roll with the punches yeah. in that kind of environment. Uh, so from my farm background, my, you know, just, I don't have a rough and tumble background, but I just learned to, you know, handle those kind of things. Yeah. You know, uh, I learned that, you know, if you find something offensive, that sometimes it's not very wise to jump up in somebody's face and let them know how offensive it is. You got to figure out a way to reach, connect to them. If you want to uh, stop them from doing the offensive conduct, then you got to signal somehow your disbelief. And if you really want to help them change their idea about something, then you've got to find a way to identify with them, have them identify with you to talk about why you think that they're not viewing the, the things the way that you're viewing them and why. I mean, you, you don't set out to tell them why they're wrong. Right. That's a non-starter. But to try to get them to open their eyes about um, another perspective yeah. on the issue. So, you know. Is that how you uh, manage your relationship and your department's relationship with the current General Assembly, which is Republican now? We flipped in 2010. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. since 2011, they've been in power. Is that, is that kind of your MO with the current legislature? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I can recall having um, an identified uh, member of the House being absolutely opposed to something. Uh, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to be the messenger in this case. you got to figure out who your messenger is. So I called around to lawyers in his county to find out, you know, who does this person listen to? Who would be the best messenger to talk? I mean, this happened to be a legal thing that this person totally misunderstood Mm. so we found somebody that they would listen to somebody would be trusted that information trusted it I didn't think it would be trusted coming from me Mm. because they seem so adamantly opposed to it so you got to pick your messenger as well as your message and you got to pick your time too so and I remember that legislator we're not naming him I remember that situation uh you were able to make that go away yes (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was good. I, re- I remember watching. Not, not to the extent I wanted, but yes. Yeah, yeah, I understand. It was rocky there for a while. Mm. But yeah. So let's talk about our state of politics right now. It seems that one side thinks the other side is anti-American, anti-North Carolina. The other side thinks that the other side is, is uh, the same. I mean, we just seem to be very divided. A lot of change since you came into politics in the early 90s. Madam Secretary, if you had a magic wand or a magic gavel (laughs) and you could change one thing today about our politics, what would would it be? 
I would insist that the people at the General Assembly in particular, but the people in Congress also socialize with each other more. That way they can figure out that they are human beings. They all basically have families. They all have other experiences and things that uh, they've learned in their life that they know as truisms for them, and it may not be a truism for somebody else. This is one of the things of lobbying reform that I think has been harmful. And it used to be that associations would have large events where maybe half or more of the General Assembly would come to pretty much all of them or a lot of them, and you could stand around over a cocktail hour and talk to people about their ideas about things. You could lobby. I used to go lobby for my own bills at those kinds of things. If I knew somebody I was interested in in talking to myself rather than my liaison talking to them, that they might be at the home builders or they might be at the county commissioners association, you know, who, whichever those events were, I would try to go and just have a little personal conversation with them. But I would never start out talking about, hey, you know, what's your opposition to Bill so-and-so? You know, right. we, we'd talk about everything from the weather, the food, to their family. And if you don't know the people, you can't ask about their family. you you got to be sincere about it. I right. mean, you can pick a phone in a minute um, to, to get to know them, to appreciate them. Because, you know, each and every one of us as a House member or a Senate member have absolutely the same vote. Right. Some of them have more power than others as far as letting things go through. But, um, you know, hopefully people can realize the impact that we're trying to make with proposals. Who is being hurt? Uh, why are they being hurt? How are they being hurt? Or what is the deficiency that really needs to be fixed to make North Carolina more economically competitive or to make um, certain business opportunities available more widespread? You know, right. those kinds of things to just drill down. And if you know what somebody's interest is, then you can see how what you're talking about might fit with that interest, yeah. how it would benefit, or even how it would, would harm, you know, yeah. if that's the case, to talk through it. So you think we went too far with some of those government reforms? Because it, it I've heard this, and I felt it. And I've, I've been lobbying down there for 20 years. I, I do remember it being... There was more social opportunities, and now it seems like we just everyone goes out to dinner with their tribe. Right. Uh, right. Right. Maybe we overreached. You know, the idea was to show transparency. Yeah. You know, how much money was spent uh, on entertaining to persuade somebody to vote certain ways on energy things or transportation things or you know what have you. Um, they're not prohibited. So people decided either that they were too expensive for what they were getting out of them or they were causing undue flack somewhere along the line or they could spend their money better in other ways like contributions, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's not that they've been outlawed. They are permissible if you jump through the hoops to do it. There are lots of opportunities that people could do together if we had bipartisan activities, if we had bipartisan day of giving, go out to the food bank and sort out food, or if we had, I don't know, you can name any charity out there. I think it would be funny. NC State students do the Krispy Kreme run. Yeah. We could have a general assembly <laughs> marathon around the block a couple times for those that are willing to be 
bold enough to do it, I would say foolish enough, bold <laughs> enough to do it, you know, um, have, you know, women's rate. I don't know. We could, we could, we got smart people could figure up yeah. a way to raise some money for a charity, get to know each other, do a project together. I mean, there, there are opportunities out there. Well, Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, we appreciate everything you do for North Carolina. We appreciate everything you've done in your political career in North Carolina politics. You certainly know how to do politics better. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you. It's been a delightful time. The Do Politics Better podcast is sponsored by the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association. Beer and wine distributors in North Carolina are family-owned companies that directly employ more than 5,600 men and women across the state. The North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association works with the General Assembly to develop alcohol policies that ensure fairness in a competitive marketplace and promote responsible behavior. Visit the North Carolina Beer and Wine Wholesalers Association at ncbeerwine.com for more information. I'm sad that I missed out on this interview because Secretary Marshall is such a pioneer for elected women Mm -hmm. and it is women's history month and just so many stories that she told on the podcast were indicative of the challenges that women have faced and continue to face in elected office and just daily life tweet of the week so this week's tweet of the week is from our own brian lewis the hashtag do politics better bracket challenge created by our colleague me i'm at skydiving 11 Use this thread in the tweet to vote. So this is not a traditional thread of March Madness where it's just two people going head to head. Right. We did, we categorized it. Yeah. yeah. And I had the idea for our one year episode to do kind of a Twitter poll of different folks that we've had on the podcast. And then I turned it into a March Madness thing because Brian told me to wait. So I've held it for the last two weeks. But then Jeff Tabiri. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Jeff Tabiri came out with his like 30 minutes. He did. He also did a bracket, which is really a good bracket. Uh, but he, not as good as ours. <laughs> that's what the people are saying. That's what not it, me. Other people. <laughs> we were included. I would never say that, but I heard some folks in the street say it. Carl. Yeah, Carl did say it. We were included in Jeff's brackets as a snub. Yeah, well, we're not in the bracket. Yeah, but we're a snub. That's okay. You, you, we got mentioned, so sometimes snubs do okay. Right, and in our bracket, it's important to know a couple people brought up that... Senator Berger and Speaker Moore are not in our bracket. Yeah. Well, I mean, they would win, right? Yeah. And this is a bracket of the people, the regular people right. of the General Assembly. Right. Right. The, the working class of the General Assembly. Yeah. Go through the categories. And we have 32 legislators mm-hmm. paired off. So into right now we have 16 different brackets. They're all leading up to a championship. But you divided these 32 legislators into categories. Let's go through it. So let's start at the top left. Good guys of the NCGA. Nominees for this category are Representative Matthew Winslow versus Representative Brian Farkas. A great matchup, some would say. Mm -hmm. That's a tough matchup, yeah. Mm -hmm. Representative Chris Humphrey versus Senator Ben Clark. I did get a text message from one of these good guys that said, I am a good guy, but I'm also very competitive, and I'm afraid that it's going to 
hurt me on the good guy side. He, that's how much <laughs> this legislator wants to come out of this bracket. So go ahead. The second category is? Best Twitter accounts. We have Senator Kravik versus Senator Gailey. Representative Ashton Clemens versus Representative John Torbett. Mm. Very active on Twitter. Then we move down to the OGs of the General Assembly. Senator Toby Fitch versus Representative Julia Howard. A very OG matchup. Mm-hmm. I'd like, yeah, that would be a great matchup. Moving down, Representative Becky Carney versus Senator Dan Blue. And Dan Blue has already commented on this. He's the longest serving legislators in the General <laughs> Assembly. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. That's why we didn't have him in best Twitter feed. <laughs> Of course, if we're going to put the OGs, we have to put the new kids on the block. We have Representative Ricky Hurtado versus Representative Aaron Perret. I noticed there that the accent is not over the E. Yeah, we got to fix that. Then moving down, we have Senator Michael Lazara versus Representative Kristen Baker. Top right, best friends of the pod. And so we did this as a double bracket. Yeah. Because Brian wanted to pit people in their own party against one another. I did. I thought that'd be, I think that'd be more fun. So a matchup of a couple best friends Mm -hmm. should be good. We have Representative John Bell and Senator Jim Perry, both who've been on the podcast multiple times. Mm -hmm. Moving down, we have Senator Danny Britt versus Senator Todd Johnson. How do you feel about that? I like both of them a whole lot. (laughs) hate to see one of them lose here that's the way the cookie crumbles Mm -hmm. moving down we have senator mike woodard one of our first guests on the podcast and i did mess up and not it's very hard to spell the word wood (laughs) so (laughs) just keep that in mind (laughs) as a spelling bee champion i'm ashamed and he matched up with senator kirk devier and then we have representative brian turner Versus Senator Jay Chaudhary. Lots of good friends to the podcast. They engage with us a lot about the podcast. Yeah, they do. So moving down the bracket, we have best debater, Senator Deanna Ballard versus Representative Destin Hall. And we have Representative Robert Reeves versus Senator Sidney Batch. And then closing out our bracket, we have best accent. And we have Representative Ed Goodwin versus Representative Michael Ray. Classic matchup of accents. And then we have Senator Tom McKinnis versus Senator Brent Jackson, who was on the podcast last week. If you need a refresher on his accent, you can take a listen to that. And we got a couple comments. We did have some folks that we left off. We did do a play-in game. We don't know where this is going to end up, but we ended up pitting Representative Billy Richardson against Representative Terry Brown, Billy Richardson representing the OG bracket, and Representative Brown, a new kid on the block. So this voting is on my Twitter account, and you can vote until Tuesday. We are going to close off this first round on Tuesday, and then we will move into the next round. We're not going to go a full week for those next rounds, but we will get to a final champion by, I guess, in a couple weeks. Yes, it'll be very exciting. So if you're listed, lobby your votes. We'll see who wins. Good luck to everyone. So back to Jeff Tiberi's brackets. I pitched him this idea that his brackets will produce a champion. Our brackets 
will produce a champion, but we have a way of deciding an ultimate champion. Our champion will go head to head with his champion and we will do a poll on that. The only thing that would be weird, because he has a lot of media Mm -hmm. outlets in his bracket. So I don't know how, let's just say a John Bell comes out of our bracket. I don't know how how he's going to face up against the Associated Press. Well, I guess we'll just have to see how that plays out. (laughs) But Jeff was a good sport. We're like, hey, you know, you put your brackets out 30 minutes early. And then we put ours out and we need to settle this. I, you know, it, it'll be fun. We'll, we'll make it work. Remember this week to take the time to look up Brian Lewis's Twitter. He's at New Frame Inc. Take the time to go through the thread. It'll only take you a couple minutes to go through and vote for the folks that you want to move on to the next round. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We will see you next week for the Sweet 16 of the Do Politics better NCGA bracket challenge and enjoy the first week and weekend of the NCAA tournament. Have some fun with your friends while you're watching basketball. Remember, it's not the time or place for politics. <laughs> so just do politics better. Just spilled water all over. It goes well with the dog hair all over your sweatshirt or sweater. What is that, Nautica? <laughs> Yeah. Oh, I saw you look at my outfit like, what can I <laughs> criticize about her? <laughs> mm. Eye for an eye for you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>